Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today is July 27th. This is episode 61. Well, just ahead, a brand new SPAC collapses after the company admits it has a big problem, problems undisclosed in its offering. And join us for the incoherent mumblings of Elon Musk. You got to hear it to believe it. And a fascinating interview with a big realtor that was remote back before remote was cool. EXP World Holdings CEO Glenn Sanford joins us. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And if you've got a smart speaker, and you know, who doesn't, just turn to that smart speaker and say, hey, smart speaker, or, you know, X, uh, Alexa, or Echo, or Google, or whatever you call the thing, and say, hey, play the Drill Down podcast. You'll like what you hear. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We'll tell you some business stories behind stocks and the move, and we'll have the important news of the day for the business world. Joining me to help us with that, executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac, tell me the three most important developments in the world of business today. Now, Corey, I know you hate it when I do this, but this first story is three in one. No, that's not, that's Hang just in three. There. It's not one. How is it I'm in gonna one? Get- Everyone listening, I'm going to get my wrist slapped after we finish this recording, but here we go. So we have we have a slew of earnings right after the bell today. Apple, Alphabet, Google, and Microsoft are out with earnings. Microsoft revenue jumped 21%, its highest quarterly revenue total ever. So that's one story. Alphabet's quarterly revenue Here's jumped another 62%, story. representing the company's largest percentage jump in quarterly sales in about 14 years. And Apple... Apple earned $21.7 billion in profit for the three-month period that ended in June. That's the best fiscal third quarter in Apple's 45-year history. All right. The people didn't pay for all those extra <laughs> stories. There you You're going to give them more? Yeah, we're giving them more. This is a bargain well, show. No, not, this is not a bargain <laughs> show. If they pay extra, they get more stories. Well, maybe they will pay extra. Who knows? Okay, so, now, you're, listen, summar- the- so you're summarizing that as the three biggest earnings. tech companies earnings. had yeah. great quarters. Great. Very good quarters. I mean, you know, we'll see as we dig deeper into these numbers overnight. They just came out as we're I mean, recording 62% this. 62% year over year for Alphabet is amazing. It's, it's, they look all very strong. Now, number two story that we're watching today, U.S. Number home price. four. <laughs> Technically number four. The fourth, third most important story of the day. <laughs> yeah. 
Now, U.S. home prices. U.S. home prices rising over 16% in the year that ended in May. Now, that's up from an almost 15% annual rate in April. In fact, May marked the highest annual rate of price growth since the index began in 1987. And by index, I mean the S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller National Home Price Index. Wow, that's a mouthful. Now, that measures average home prices in major metropolitan areas across the U.S., as you may or may not know. Now, behind this price growth, of course, low mortgage interest rates, and many homes are getting multiple offers and selling above asking price. I don't know Case. I know Schiller, Robert Schiller from Yale. Yeah, he was a frequent guest in our programs in our at one of our former employers. Yeah, I've done a couple of events with him over the years at different things. Nice guy. A very, very nice man. Uh, then this has become the kind of the standard, the benchmark for what is really happening with retail home yes, prices. Yes, very true. Hey, give now, us the sixth most important, third business most important. No, the hundredth most important business story of the day. No, there's only six. <laughs> so is, wait, wouldn't this be the fifth? This would be the fifth. This is more than three. <laughs> What's the three. third most important business now, story of the day, Isaac? Listen, and this is another. I already told you, but here's the fifth. This is another evolution here. Now, so, something we're paying attention to tonight. China. Chinese technology stocks like Alibaba and Baidu continue to fall as the sector feels the weight of more regulatory scrutiny from Beijing that we've been talking about on the show. Now, most recently, Tencent's WeChat messaging service temporarily, temporarily suspended new user registrations in mainland China as it rolls out an upgrade to, quote, align with relevant laws and regulations, end quote. Now, the regulatory crackdown from China has stoked fears that foreign investors will flee Chinese stocks. Stoked indeed. Yeah, that's right. Now, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on tonight? Well, I want to start with Tesla, which reported yesterday, but we had some kind of came in late, well after the bell, and the conference call was even later, and it was a doozy. Yeah, Tesla shares fell 3% today, but they've gained over 105% over the past 12 months. So uh, tell us what you learned about Tesla. I'd argue this is the strongest quarter they've reported yet. Um, the big sales of the Model Y crossover and the Model 3 sedan, a 400% increase in operating income. Uh, uh, they had good sales of, of their uh, renewable energy credits uh, as well, just short of $12 billion all told in revenue. By not paying their bills, payables increased on their balance sheet. So the leftover free cash flow was also very strong for the company compared to their lack of free cash flow in the past. So you'd think it would have been a big cheerleading party. You mentioned the stock was down 3% today, whatever. But it was ugly because uh, the earnings call was just weird. I mean, uh, we you know, the last time- What do you mean reported, weird? What does that mean? Well, Elon Musk was, uh, uh, quoting other people, they were calling him incoherent. Um, I hadn't listened to the call yet when I started to see these people saying, are you trying to listen to this guy? And I, I know he has been like that. Um, there was other news in the conference call. For example, their cyber truck- uh, that they unveiled with great hoopla a while yeah. back. Uh, well, they described it as currently in the alpha stages. Huh? We finished the basic engineering architecture of the vehicle, but the Model Y will be the priority at their new factory in Texas. So if it's in the alpha stages, but Model Y will be a priority, that means no cyber truck this year, to be sure. But uh, the questioning of Elon Musk was yielded some just very rambling Results, it's, it's hard to, you know, when, when we pull these sound bites for this show, we want to find something coherent and, you know, useful? encapsulated, useful maybe. So here with, and I'm not apologizing, I'm explaining, with some long pauses 
and meanderings. Elon Musk has asked at one point if, if he would be willing to do an annual interview with Yahoo, for, or sorry, with with uh, with you, YouTube. And he's asking, will you do an interview with YouTube every year? And he says, uh, long pause, long pause. Listen for yourself. Think what you uh, uh, will above about Elon Musk. Um. Yeah, I guess uh, I, you know, I'll do, do an interview. Um, I mean, just bear in mind, like, if I'm doing interviews, then I, I, I can't do actual other work, you know, so uh, <laughs> it, it, it's not, um, you know, <laughs> it's just, I don't have so much time in the day, so. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do it once. No, I'm, I won't do it annually, but I'll do it once. I think also, like, um, that this is the I wouldn't um, say the last time I'll do earnings calls, but this is the I, I will no longer be default doing earnings calls. Uh, so uh, obviously I'll do the annual shareholder meeting, but um, I think uh, going forward I I will um, most likely not be on earnings calls unless there's something really important that um, that I need to say. Well, if that was important, I, I I don't even know what to make of that. I have my like, moments. I may be having one today and I'm unable to speak, but I just, I'm shocked at, at his increasingly meandering nature on these calls. Okay. A couple things. Why do we care if he does an interview with YouTube? I don't care. No one cares. Do it or don't do it. Who cares? But to answer the question, my point is he can't put together a, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, you, you know, know they, the thing is, but with, with him, with Elon Musk, I mean, this is, how he speaks shouldn't we be you shouldn't we be accustomed to this by now this is how a lot of the uh, the the earnings calls go you know he he tends to speak stream of consciousness style which you know that's just how it is so at this yeah, point I, I feel like we should this should all be baked into the market is my point it, w it was uh, not encouraging i i would say it sounded more incoherent than usual but that's just me i don't know that's why we play these bites. Let the listener decide. Let the listener decide. Exactly. Okay. Now, Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at UPS. Doesn't get bigger than that. UPS. I think I've heard of this company. Shares fell 8% today. You're not going to tell me the ticker symbol? Oh, let me think about it. Well, hold on. I, gotta, I, have to I have to find it real quick. Let me look. Oh, God. I'm still searching. No, searching, don't. Searching. Oh, Come UPS. On. Oh, the ticker symbol is UPS. Right. There you go. <laughs> no, listen. Shares of UPS shares have risen 59% in a year. They did fall today, but in a year, they've risen 59%. So tell, talk to me about UPS. Yeah. Revenue is up 14% year over year for the second quarter. Revenue of $23 billion. 10% in the U.S. domestic segment. They give us segmentation around those things. Uh, that's about, on a sort of per-piece level, it was 13% increase in revenue per piece. And they projected margins of 12.7%. Some people in Wall Street were looking for more whatever. Wall Street was wrong. But um, they did talk about certain headwinds that they're getting higher compensation expenses because a union contract uh, increase goes into effect in August. Other wage increases in other geographies where markets are tight um, means they're going to have to hire and pay more. Um, lower margin enterprise and business to consumer volumes um, because stores are reopening. And when stores reopen, people don't order as much online. And when they ship to stores, they ship at a, at a little bit lower price. So even when all those things are coming together, though, you know, they seem to have a handle on it 
the conference call was a, was a profile in confidence. However, when UPS logistics are all together, that doesn't mean their customers' logistics are all together. Here's CEO Carol Tomei. You know, we've been talking to our large customers about what they're seeing in their business. And interestingly, uh, one large brick-and-mortar customer told us they had 50 containers that were stuck in the port. And until those containers can get into their warehouses and into their stores, it's hard to sell. So there's a bit of, you know, an uncertainty out there. But we're going to control what we are going to control. And we share this back-half view with you because we thought you should know what we're, what we're, what we, what we're seeing and what we're thinking about our, our business. So there you have it. UPS... Uh might have their ducks in a row, but that doesn't mean uh, all their customers do. Now, Corey, what's your next drill down? All right, let's look at a company that I've never looked at before today, uh, ATI Physical Therapy. ATI Physical Therapy that trades under ATIP. Shares fell 19% today, and they've lost 64% since, since they started trading this year. So what's going on with ATI Physical Therapy? Well, this is an outrageous story. Okay, ATI. I like therapy. outrageous. I like that. Oh, I know yeah. you do. I'm listening now. ATI. Finally, ATI Physical Therapy is the <laughs> number one independent provider of physical therapy in terms of having the most clinics in the United States. They announced this the first quarter they have ever announced earnings, and they were a great disappointment. They were terrible. But what's important here is these guys just did an IPO just weeks ago. And not just any IPO, it was a SPAC IPO. And one of the differences with a SPAC IPO is those companies are legally allowed to tell us what's about to happen. They can give their projections for the next quarter, the next year, the next many years. You normally can't do that with an IPO because companies lie or companies don't hit the results that they'd predicted. And it uh, with the SEC had determined in the past that that was too much for a pre-public company to do. But because an IPO uh, through a SPAC is sort of a merger, maybe they could give out these numbers. And this company did that. They put out lots of numbers. They put out numbers in February. They put out numbers in May. They did the deal in June. And here we are in July after selling hundreds of millions of dollars of stock. And they're saying, oh, yeah, about that thing we said in June, uh, not so much. So they had guys, so they've lowered the guidance for the year. They said they're going to do about 640, 670 million, so call it 650, 655, uh, down from the 731 that they had estimated just a month ago when they were selling stock. This, uh, this SPAC, which had been before was known as, a, as a, um, ATI Physical Therapy, was called Fortress Value Acquisition Corporation 2, did a June 17 IPO. Now, they did an IPO. They redeemed a lot of shares. In other words, they bought shares back in the proceeds of the SPAC from the existing shareholders, um, 9 million shares um, at, at $10 each. Stock's trading at today at $3.82. And the big problem, the Ouch. big business problem they announced was it turns out their physical therapists were quitting in droves. Why? Well, I'll get to the why. But I, So they were quitting in the second quarter. Do you know when the second quarter ended? The second quarter ended the end of June. Well, mm. as late as May 21st, they were doing presentations. They put in their presentation, we have dedicated clinical staff that is highly engaged, great place to work, certified. Well, now today we find out during Q2, while they were making that announcement, direct quote, we experienced unexpectedly high levels of attrition among our therapists, which has continued into Q3. Huh. They didn't mention that when they were selling stock. 
It only no, mentioned that after not. the stock is sold. Now, they're boasting about great place to work. At the same time, they're actually, they're having big cutbacks on how much they pay people. They're cutting back on the perks they're giving to employees. And they're quitting in droves. And the question, and it was raised uh, during the conference call this morning, how ill-conceived were these changes in compensation for the employees that sent them running for the doors? Just how bad was this attrition? And did they know that they were the cause of this? Here's the CEO, Labid Diab. So the, the changes that we made during the COVID-19 pandemic related to compensation and benefits, um, you know, did, did have an impact on, on our team members. I want to be very clear that we have absolutely identified those, those comp and benefit-related issues and have reversed them. Uh, some of them were, you know, we, we had to reduce um, hours. We had to uh, put people on furlough. Um, we, we took away benefits that we're realizing are very important to our people from our, our wearables program to our continuing education programs. Those things have all been identified and have been reversed, and that has been communicated um, into the field. But, you know, the, the, the confluence of the events that resulted in, in the accelerated attrition from what we did, um, coupled with the increased demand for our services, the labor market dynamic, dynamics that increased competition for the available physical therapy providers in the workplace, created the headwinds that we're, that we're dealing with today, but also want to reiterate that we've identified those issues, have reversed them, and feel confident that we are going to lower our attrition for the back half. So they were cutting back on pay. They were furloughing employees. They were changing whatever they were allowed to do with their mobile devices. The people were quitting in the second quarter and still into the third. They knew it was a result of their actions, or at least they know that now. But uh, until this morning, Wall Street and the rest of the world was unaware of this. This is why, Isaac, one of the things I would do when I was looking at companies to invest in and or short is I would comb through LinkedIn looking for former employees and reach out to anyone who would tell me about what goes on behind mm -hmm. the closed doors because you know it's always different than the public profile. Yeah, what he said, you know, I'd be surprised if that helped investors feel confident that they're going to have this ship turned around or this little problem fixed by the end of the year. As yeah, might, it's a shocker, and say. I think you see that reflected uh, in the share price. But more importantly, it looks like this business has some problems keeping staff. Which well, you know, you, we, every other company we hear from can't hire people, and these yeah. guys are like, cool, we'll cut their pay, cut their benefits, <laughs> um, get rid of some of their, exactly. furlough them. And I'm sorry, but how do you run a physical therapy business if you don't have physical therapists to do it? I think, like, I think that's a question don't. they're asking over exactly. there, okay. ATI physical therapy. All right, we will, I wish them well. Bless their hearts. Up next, EXP World Holdings CEO, Glenn Sanford. There's a fascinating company that has been entirely mobile since the beginning of its existence, and it is growing by leaps and bounds in the world of real estate. We'll have the story from the CEO after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes some 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities. Learn more at ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And remember to join the Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. And check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. All right, welcome back to The Drill Down. We're joined right now by Glenn Sanford. He is the CEO of EXP World Holdings. 
an absolutely fascinating company at any time, but especially in 2021. Uh, Glenn, glad to have you on the show. Um, you guys have just the most interesting business. The fact that it's in real estate is just part of it. But how, how do you describe the business to people? Uh, well, primarily we're a cloud-based residential real estate brokerage, which um, we started in 2009, um, you know, basically because I couldn't afford physical bricks and mortar offices and originally referred to ourselves as virtual or, and, and then we actually use a virtual world for business to actually meet together as a team and, and with all of our agents and brokers. And we, we use some really cool tech. So at one time we actually referred to ourselves as the world's first fully immersive web 3.0 real estate brokerage, but that was a little bit too wordy. So we just went cloud-based. So you didn't have an office. You couldn't put that in the front of the building. You didn't realize instantly how bad a name that was. Well, it is, it is such a fascinating business. So, uh, all right, the real estate brokerage business, and we can talk a little bit about that is, is a, a well-known model, right? Where you've got, where you've got local brokers and they sell houses in the place that they're, they're at. Um, and then they work for an agency that has an office and uh, they turn over some of their money to the agency and they keep some of the rest of the, of the, of the proceeds. Correct. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's been really the history of real estate probably for as long as there's been houses. You know, there's been somebody who sort of either, you know, has networked with the community and helped somebody buy and sell homes. And then, you know, then eventually, I, I think in the, you know, 70s, 80s, there was a thing called the MLS that sort of allowed brokerages to start to share a listing between offices. Um, but, you know, for for basically, since the beginning of time, there was a real estate office, you go there, find out what whoever worked there had listed, and then you go out and look at houses. So that was sort of the, the history of, of real estate. You guys take that existing model and you say, well, what do you need the office for? What was the great inspiration there? You said you couldn't afford one, but. Well, the, yeah, there were two things. One, I called the perfect storm um, at that point in time in 2009. We'd just come off uh, out of the, the big crash in 2008 in the housing market. Uh, but we'd also at that point went from, from in 2002, I was dial up internet. Pretty much in everybody's home, it was dial up internet. So, you know, yeah. You were doing good if you had a 56K baud modem, if you can remember back into those Yes, days. I was. <laughs> and, and by 2009, everybody had high-speed internet, the cable internet in their homes for the most part. And so uh, the reason why people would go to the office a lot of times is because that's where the high-speed internet was. And, uh, and then also consumers you know, needed to go to a real estate office to find out where the listings were. So you know, if you would shop for homes in the 90s, uh, or 80s or or 70s, uh, and even into the early mid 2000s, you would stop by a real estate office and get a tear sheet of all the listings that you wanted right. to go preview and drive by the outside of, and then you come back to the office and you grab the real estate agent that you 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 met there when you stopped in earlier, and you go, okay, I want to look at this one, this one, and this one, and so they make an appointment, and then you go and look at those homes. So that was kind and of so you recognize that 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 infrastructure that the industry took for standard wasn't necessary anymore. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at things like Zillow and Redfin and Realtor.com and a bunch of these websites that you know consumers started to walk around with in their pocket, especially post the iPhone. And my iPhone came out, what, 2008-ish? 2009. And, yeah, 2008. Yeah. And, and, and so now you've got, you know, consumers starting to walk around and be able to see on their phones where the listings are. And, and so they're, they're not needing to go to the office. They can really literally drive around. So for us, we just 
saw where the industry was going, we said, somebody's going to build this. Uh, right now, it's the perfect time to be building this infrastructure because it's it's a lot less expensive to build a virtual real estate company than a physical-based real estate company. So why don't we build that? So that was really the impetus of, of, the, of the model. Two, fundamentally, was we could actually build something that was profitable in good times and bad times because you know when you don't have physical offices, you don't have the fixed expenses that go with having all that infrastructure. And then, and and, then this, yeah. Well, and you've built a big business here. I mean, you've got a $5 billion market cap on the thing right now. And, and you've got a, how many, what's your realtor count right now? Well, um, we're right around 60,000 agents. So I think we're just shy wow. of that uh, when we're recording this, but you know, we're really close to sort of breaking over that number. Um, which is, you know, again, there's a million things we could talk about, but getting to that size and you're in a bunch of countries now as well. Um, does the fact that you're virtual mean you could do that faster? Oh, way faster. Yeah. It's, you know, our, the friction to, to, to typically expanding a business is, you know, you got to find the location, then you got to do the tenant improvements and then, you know, and then eventually you can actually hire agents, et cetera. And when you go entirely cloud-based, you know, you sometimes do have to lease like our little Regis office somewhere to comply with license law in a particular country or particular state. But it's very easy because the agents are generally not going to come to the office. Um, they're going to come to the virtual office and they're going to communicate and collaborate online. So for us to be able to expand internationally, uh, I've done the math a few times, but it costs us less than $100,000 to open up a brand new country. And that includes licensing, contracts, compliance, all the stuff that goes along with that. When we were opening up states in the United States, I think the math was it cost us less than $20,000 every time we opened up a new state, So, which is Amazing. incredibly cheap. And which is why you've been able to grow that that number of realtors about 100. Well, one of the reasons it's about 120% higher than it had been just in 2019. Um, in fact, we might make that the drill down bite later in the show, just maybe. But in any case, uh, uh, you also pay the realtors better, right? They get a bigger cut. Talk about how that works. Yeah, so the first first and foremost is 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 we were going to ask agents not to go to an office because a lot of agents like offices. Uh, and in two thousand nine, it was really the standard. We need to make it more financially appealing for them. So a typical agent, you know, if they work for Cobalt Banker or Keller Williams or Remax. They're typically paying a like a six percent franchise fee off to the off the franchise or, and then they're typically at the local level. 70-30 uh, split with the local office. So 70% the agent gets, 30% the office gets. So they're really at about a net 65% of the real estate transaction, you know, with the franchise fee and everything else. So with EXP, they're on an 80-20 split right out the gate. So they're automatically getting a pretty substantial raise on their transactions that they're doing. And then most real estate brokerages will have some sort of cap or maximum dollar amount that that an agent will pay in each year. Right. And so, and so that maximum dollar amount, probably industry-wise, is probably $25,000 a year. Well, our cap for our agents is 16000 before they go to 100%. So, so at that 100% level, they're able to obviously keep 100% of their commissions after they've paid us 16000 less some small transaction fees. So it's just better financially for agents. So you pay these brokers more money. Um, I think that's something that people don't understand about real estate brokers is they have to work so hard just to make that nut, to make that bare minimum and, and sell so many homes just to get there. 
I think it's one of the reasons that you see, I mean, what is it? How many real estate agents don't even make it through their first year of in business? Well, their first, first renewal, about 80, 80, 85% of agents yeah. don't make their first, first, uh, license renewal. So there's extra hours they have to take typically within their first two years. So it's a, got a really high churn, uh, of agents. The other part uh, is that it is actually a pretty tough business, even for established agents, because you're dealing with some pretty emotional people. You, you, you're working with buyers. They're trying to find the home for their family to raise their family. They're, they're looking for, for the seller, of course, doesn't want to, they want maximum dollars and wants to fix as little as possible. And you're trying to kind of keep these things together. And, and you're really a psychologist in the middle. And then you do you know, an average agent does, you know, let's just say six to 10 transactions a year. So you're doing these and, and you're pretty dependent on the commissions from each of these deals to sort of maintain some level of income. So if a deal falls apart or whatever, so it's a little bit of an emotional roller coaster for, for agents, which is why even after, you know, five or five or 10 years, you see most, most agents have, are, are, are out of the business and they're off to, doing something else, getting a, a regular job, whatever. And that was actually one of the big pain points that I was trying to solve back in, in 2009 was how do you build a business that you, that you actually have some ownership in versus a business that owns you. And so if you think about a real estate agent, yeah. agent is only as good as their ability to go out there and list and sell homes which is really not a business they own. They're, they are the business of the broker owner. They're not, they, they don't own it. And so we actually introduced a concept called revenue sharing, where as agents help the brokerage grow, help us help the, us attract more agents, they'll actually get a piece of the commissions that those agents generate. Uh, and, and that'll actually sort of go down sort of akin to a network marketing comp plan, but we've adopted it for, the residential real estate agent commission, we take this out of the 20% that we take in, out of that, half of that gets shared back with agents. So we now have agents that are making, you know, $10,000, $20,000, $50,000 a month or more, uh, some substantially more, um, just from helping the company um, uh, grow. And so some of them have actually made it their profession to actually grow the brokers because from their perspective, that's way more interesting building residuals than going out and listing and selling homes all the time. Uh, and, and it has led some critics of your company to refer to you as a multi-level marketing company. Tell me why you're not. Well, uh, if you think about uh, multi-level, well, first of all, what company is not a multi-level company? I sort of, sort of put that out there first. You think about, you know, all the levels in the organization, and then ultimately you got the customer at the end. But the the reality is, is that, um, you know, we don't, you know, when people refer to multi-level marketing, they typically think about companies that load up garage with a bunch of product to a whole, to Amway, somebody who's unsuspected. Right? Yeah, exactly. And New I standard. think that's, and, and, and so that gives that compensation plan a really bad rap because, you know, somebody ends up with $3,000 worth of product that they don't know how to sell sitting in their garage, they'll never go away. Then who the heck wants to be in a business like that? And, but we, but the comp plan is actually very attractive. And we're just asking agents to attract other agents who generally are already licensed with another broker to just move their license and get paid better. And indeed, most corporations have got some kind of referral fee thing with you bring in new employees or something. I mean, I, I remember 
I remember recruiting two people to Time Inc. when I've worked at Time Inc. and they ended up working there more than 20 years, both of them. And I wish I'd just gotten 1% instead of the, right. of the I think it was a $500 bonus they got for Time Inc. Um, but so, and all right, so that's another fascinating level of your business and it has helped you guys grow at this kind of accelerated rate. Um, you also have this Verbella software. Talk to me about Verbella, how you ended up using Verbella and then buying the company and owning Verbella. Yeah, so uh, when we first launched in 2009, we said, hey, if we're going to work 100% remote, you know, what is, how are we going to build collaboration and community? And so we didn't think that, you know, at the time it was Skype, today it'd be Zoom. We don't think that that's a really good platform for building an organization. We think it's fine for transactional conversations, but not for sort of water cooler, serendipitous collision type conversations. Uh, whereas a physical office, when you think about what it actually represents, it means somebody can walk down the office, run into somebody, have a conversation, and potentially come up with this new idea or new way to solve whatever they're working on uh, just by basically being around people. And so that's why, in my opinion, bricks and mortar is still a valuable asset and something that will never entirely go away, even though we're we're adopting a cloud-based lifestyle. We, we used a platform at the time, it was called Teleplace. They've since went out of business. But, but it was a virtual world for business platform back in 2009. Um, we ended up going to another platform in 2010, went to another platform in 2011. That, biz, that company uh, ultimately spun down in 2016. And at that point in time, we saw the writing on the wall with that company. We found a company called Verbella that launched in 2012, developing a virtual world for leadership development in the university setting. That was their original sort of thesis. And uh, we saw what it could do for what we were trying to do. So we started using it. We quickly became their largest single customer, representing well over 50% of their revenues by 2018. And, and we were just a SaaS customer. And we thought it would right. make more sense for us to buy them, to keep them alive because of how much value is providing us. Um, and, and, and so you that's couldn't how see another one to go away. It was so, it's just so fascinating. I mean, here, so here you are in 2016 buying a virtual, essentially buying a, 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 I won't call it a mini Zoom, but buying a Zoom-like company, a company that allows for remote work three years, four years ahead of the, the one of the worst pandemics to ever hit the world. And yeah, we actually bought the home. company in 2018. We started using it in 2016. But yeah, we bought it in 2018 in November, I think it was. And uh, yeah, and then 2020 came around. We had 25 employees. Um, and I think we grew the employee base uh, since that point in time to up over 190 folks. I think we've trimmed it back a little bit now, but we we, we grew it because of all the companies looking for remote work solutions, remote event solutions, uh, companies that wanted to somehow adopt some of the stuff that EXP had pioneered. The, and the interface for Bell is really interesting. It, it appears to be a lot more like a like a an Xbox game or Fortnite or something than it what does the office. I mean, Fortnite minus the violence, hopefully. Right. Um, uh, but walking, you know, these virtual characters walking around this virtual 3D world, um, that's how you work when you're in a, a realtor working for eXp. Yeah, well, as a realtor working for eXp, you're working with your clients primarily, which is out right. you know, where the, pe the people in the houses are not in the virtual world. 
But when you want to work with the back office or you need some help or you want to go in for a class um, um, or, you, or, or a, every week there's each state has their various uh, trainings for and, and sort of up to date on, on rules and regs, they'll do that in the virtual world. We'll also live stream that content into our, our workplace by Facebook platform, which is basically our private label Facebook. So we've got our own sort of Facebook-like uh, community. So we'll have that so people can go back and watch and listen to the content that's been shared in world. But if you need help, if you need technical support, you need accounting support, you need to talk to somebody in your brokerage or in, in your state, um, you know, the quickest way and the most efficient way is to actually jump on Verbella and go in the office. Uh, but you can still use all the other tools, email, text. So fascinating. So how is that business doing, uh, as, if it were a standalone, but how is, you said you've grown it from 25 to about 190 employees. How is that business doing with external customers besides uh, EXP? Yeah, EXP is definitely still by uh, such a large margin, the the single biggest customer driver for that. Um, we, you know, we went all in. We weren't using it because... We needed something to create an office because of a pandemic. We did it because we we thought there was right. fundamentally a reason there. Um, so I I think we've been a little bit we were a little bit more optimistic last year about the long term prospects of of the core Verbella platform. Uh, we still are optimistic about the platform, but it's uh, but for us we're still thinking about more as investing in it for the benefit of EXP Realty. And if other customers jump on board, that's awesome. And if they if they don't, that's that's okay too, because we know what it does for our ability to scale all of the different business units that we have. But you do have some big customers on that, right? We do. Yeah, we've got some interesting partnerships. We're partnered with uh, HTC. We're partnered with, uh, I think, PwC, uh, uh, Douglas Stewart. Um, and it, there's, uh, I think Deloitte's doing some stuff with us. I mean, so we've got, we've got universities, we've got Stanford, uh, on there, UCSD, we got the, uh, U.S. Army War College, um, is, is using the platform. So we've it's got just a- interesting to me because I'm thinking, I'm thinking about when my, my buddy Bill Ty told me we were on a beach in Maui kiteboarding. He's like, yeah, I've invested in this, uh, this new um, uh, web platform for conference calls, or it's, it's called Zoom. I'm like, who needs that? We've already got 20 companies that do that. Right. Once again, Bill was right. There was room for more in, the, in this world. And so it makes me think that Verbella might have some legs. Yeah, well, we think it does. And and we've got another platform in there called FrameVR.io. And that's an entirely web-based collaboration platform. And we think that, that as we continue to grow Verbella, that might be more the future of Verbella because we could do like this conversation that we're doing here. Uh, we could be doing that on frame if we wanted to. And it's really easy to access. It doesn't take any downloads. It's entirely web VR. You can put the Oculus headsets on and come in if you want. It's pretty cool. It's just, it's so interesting that your real estate company has got all these things going for it. And, you know, we haven't talked about the real estate market and I'm not going to because we don't have all the time in the world because I do want to get your take on what we've seen in the last year about work from home and and how that's happening and what that means for the future. We've seen some companies absolutely mandate a return to the office. We've seen a lot of governments go to corporate leaders and say, you've got to get your people back in the city because the city's dying right now and we need we need workers. We need, you know, we need the buildings full. Um, so And some people, as you mentioned, like to work in an office. Um, I'm one of those people. And uh, so I wonder 
what your take is on what work from home looks like, because uh, last point is that it also has really affected the real estate market with people moving out of urban centers, moving to buy homes in places that are either more lovely or more affordable or both. Um, and, and, you know, so we saw prices in the Hamptons go through the roof and kind of have sat there. They were already, oh, they were already through the roof. They've gone through another roof. All right. We, and we've seen that all, also in rural areas. We've seen a rise in, in small farming because people are moving back to the farm. I wonder what you see as the future of um, work from home and what the workplace looks like, the relationship between the office and the home. Yeah, well, we were already on a trajectory of you know, more work from home activities, even pre-pandemic. So it's not like what what the pandemic did was it kind of was a forcing function where people couldn't go to the office. And then they said, well, if I can't go to the office and we know it's going to be a while before we have to go back to the office, we can work from anywhere. And some people figured out that it actually works really well. I think there's a survey that was done, something like 33% of people surveyed that have been working from home for the last year basically said if they were told to go to back to to work in the physical office, they would go find a job, a company that they could work for where they could work remote. So there's, so I think that the work from home um, culture is, is alive and well. I think, I think there's a, there's a hybrid culture that will definitely show up, which is, you know, maybe one or two days at work and, you know, three, three days, you know, working remote or, or something of that nature, or, a larger use of co-work spaces or co-work-like spaces where you can uh, go and be around people when you want to, but then work from anywhere and just sort of tap into this network of, of, of physical spaces. Like, you know, we're still a little ways away from what does that mean? I mean, we've got the, the Delta variant, you know, of COVID sort of you know, kind of changing again the game a little bit. People are worried, is that going to be, you know, enough? For to, good reason. Yeah. So it may be another, we may be another six six to 12 months before, you know, truly go back to the office is 100%, you know, a viable option for, for companies. Which maybe supports work from home just because people will have had two years of it and think that that's sort of something that can be, that they should expect. Yeah, I mean, and and not to mention, I think companies should be thinking about virtual options like what we have on the Verbella platform as a contingency planning tool for their business. You know, if you have, you know, remote true collaboration software, and it could be, you know, Microsoft Teams or or or, or Slack or whatever. I mean, some of that stuff does solve a bit of it, but making sure that you're you know, uberly connected when you're not in the office does allow for that more agile contingency to, to take place. Well, just a fascinating uh, way about going about business. And obviously, you guys are crushing it with the numbers. That growth is fantastic. And uh, I wish you a lot of success going forward. Glenn Sanford is the CEO of EXP. Uh, and uh, glad to have you on. I told you that drill down bite is coming up. We're going to talk about exactly what that number is. That drill down bite, the one number that means a whole lot. Told you they're growing at six, up to 60,000 brokers right now. Where were they in 2019? A lot less. We'll have that number when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by ERA, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. ERA's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill in on, on any of your favorite podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, 
Amazon, you name it. But it's a lot easier if you hit the subscribe button, follow us, catch every show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. We're back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. You heard about the fabulous growth in the number of realtors. And we'll get the exact number when the company reports earnings, uh, I think, in uh, the first week of August, Isaac. But uh, in the meantime, let's just look at the comparison of where they ended last quarter and where they were the end of 2019. So they ended last quarter with 50,333 realtors under their umbrella, their virtual umbrella. Well, they had 25,423 at years and in 2019. So they go from 25,423 to 50,333 during the pandemic. I'm just incredible growth for this company. Almost double. And if most of your realtors sell some stuff, Revenues are going to increase. And if you can double the number of realtors, probably good for revenues as well. And then, of course, you know, rising housing market. Interesting company. All right. Well, yeah. thank you for listening to Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.